your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. This is God's word. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're grateful for your word that we don't come as your people in worship to hear the opinions of a person, the thoughts, the ramblings. We come to hear from you. And you have spoken to us in your word, and we give you thanks for it. And we pray that you would now take your word and open it to us that we might see wonderful things from it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Last time, Jesus, uh, Jesus. <laughs> next to Jesus, Leslie uh, called me <laughs> called me stubborn <clears throat> for standing as long as I did, and so she gave me freedom today, and, and I'm already feeling it, so I'm, I'm going to start here by sitting. Well... We look at a story in the text of Matthew that is familiar to us. It's maybe a favorite of ours, uh, one that we heard as a child, likely, if we grew up in the church. Uh, And it's one that has uh, been spoken and taught of in many times and in many places. Uh, it's, It's one that we can relate to because in some ways we've all experienced the awe of nature. Uh, if it's not in standing at the ocean, I mean, we live here, we see it all the time, but aren't there still times that we go and we stand at the ocean and we're still just kind of caught in awe may come when we visit the mountains or we see some other kind of geographical, uh, experience, uh, site that we're not accustomed to. Uh, I think of times when, you know, there's been treats to do things we don't normally do, like go under the water and snorkel or dive and look along a reef and just be amazed at creation. Um, even when we do things like look through a microscope and kind of go the other way, instead of the awe, you know, we look down and we see the awe in the microscopic. If nothing else, then when we see the birth of a child, uh, there is this sense of awe when we look at nature. I think even the atheist in moments like this may slip and become a bit of an agnostic uh, as they experience the awe of nature. And the agnostic or those who are not sure of their belief might uh, transform just a bit and at least acknowledge a deity. We who are believers, of course, desire to worship the one true God, the creator of all things in moments like these, that the recognizing that the natural world proclaims a message of a kind, benevolent, all-powerful, creative maker of all things. This is what Psalm 19 tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And Romans 1 
verse 20, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But as much as we might be in awe of creation when we see wonderful, beautiful things, there's also occasions where both atheist and believer alike, I think sometimes without reservation, cry out to God. And that is in the terror of nature. Because as we have probably all experienced, there are times where nature is bigger and grander and more powerful and more fearsome than anything that we might just look at and appreciate for its beauty. You've seen this on television shows. If you, like me, uh, appreciate uh, storm chasers, you know there's these crazy people, and someday... Someday I'm going to do this. You know, you can, you can, you can pay and go as like a, a, a tourist and do storm chasing. Uh, but you know, these, these, these people that chase storms, they believe in science, most of them. And by that, I mean science is kind of a religion to them that they would not acknowledge a creator. But if you ever see them get a little too close to the twister, guess who they cry out for? Uh, you've seen it when, uh, you, you've been in other situations, I think, of flying. I'll never forget uh, flying one time. The pilot described it as clear air turbulence. I didn't get a chance to talk to Sonny about this, if that's a true thing or not. That's what the pilot of this plane described as, as British Airways flying from London to Bucharest, Romania. We flew right over the Alps. It was beautiful blue skies, beautiful scenery down below us, these big mountains. And then all of a sudden, the plane lost so much altitude. I never experienced anything like this in my life. The the, the, the bins fell open, the bags fell out, the, a couple ceiling panels uh, fell out. It was, uh, well, I mean, we all thought we were going to die. And guess what everybody cried out for in those, those seconds of terror? Um, I, and I've told this story before, probably told the airplane story before. Uh, there have only been a few times in my life where I thought I was going to die. One of them was on the water in a storm, similar to our text today. I went out with a coworker who was an unbeliever who learned to take God's name in vain in creative ways that I had never heard as he... I I knew the minute that we put out into the harbor, when everything was calm and and perfectly fine, uh, he didn't have a clue what he was doing. And I certainly didn't didn't in this little sailboat. Uh, But we made the mistake of going out of the harbor and uh, sailed us right into a squall, and I thought we were going to die. Well, in moments like this, people often take God's name in vain. But isn't it interesting that that's who people call out for, even the atheist and the agnostic, that in this power and terror of nature, who do we look to? And I think this in part is because we want to believe that we're in control of our lives, that we control our circumstances. But the natural realm has a way uh, in in often quite quickly of showing us how that is a facade, (laughs) that we are not in control of what is around us. We are not in control of our circumstances. And whether it's through a storm or through a diagnosis or through something as seemingly benign as gravity, if you've ever taken a misstep off of a ladder, uh, off of a trail, off of the side of a roof, uh, you will notice how something um, can go from perfectly calm to sheer terror in milliseconds, right? that the natural realm has a way of rattling our worlds, and we think, who can help us? Who can save us? Well, that's what we see in this passage, again, that's familiar to us. All of the synoptic gospels recount this passage. 
but we're going to look at Matthew's today. And as I've mentioned before, I'm not afraid to refer to the other gospel accounts, but I'm trying to not harmonize the gospels because we're studying Matthew. And if the Lord allows me to stay here long enough, we'll get to the other gospels and we'll look at their accounts uh, eventually. It may be in a few decades. Um, but for now, I, w- I want us to look at Matthew's account. And it's unique in, in Matthew's own way. It's the shortest of all of the accounts. It's quite brief. Um, and, and so I want us to see how he arranges this. Uh, so as a way of a reminder, because we had Advent and then we had all of this that's happened to me, um, it's been a minute since we've been in Matthew, at least not, I know I was here two weeks ago and then another mishap, but, um, back before Advent in November, you'll remember that following the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, uh, came into Capernaum and there were these three accounts of healing that he performed to show his power to heal the physical body. And then, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, there was this little excursus into discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. It's almost like it didn't, didn't belong. And then we come back this week, and we see now that in this first account, he's showing his power over the natural realm. What we'll see in the subsequent text next week is his power over the spiritual realm in healing, uh, casting out demons, and then following that, his power to forgive sin. And so what Matthew's doing, remember Matthew's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He wants them to see and to know this is the promised one. This is the anointed one, the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so he's showing in part his power as uh, God in the flesh who has come to redeem his people from their sins. But also this, he dovetails in this need that we respond, that we obey, that we follow him as the call is to discipleship that we looked at previously. And so the reason, at least in part, that Matthew does this is that it is possible for us to look at Jesus and just kind of think he's neat. You know, to look at his works, to listen to his teachings, to to see who he is, his ideology, and just kind of be enamored as we are with maybe other people. And so Matthew, what he's doing here is bringing these together that we might see in awe and we might marvel as the disciples did at who Jesus is but also that we would respond in belief and faith and obey the one who is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God and son of man. And so look with me now at verse 23. It's a continuation of the previous text. Jesus had already announced, you'll remember, uh, his intention to want to cross over the sea. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but we've seen it in other gospel accounts that this was the habit of Jesus, particularly following seasons, hours, times of ministry, focused ministry, that he would go and pull away. And so he, um, he, if that was his reason or not, we're not told. But here he's pulling away with the disciples to cross over the sea. And um, Andy, it might be good if I got the other pack because sitting is not working with this one. And I realize I'm distracting everybody. I'm distracting myself. Um, so, so Jesus had announced my, his intention, let's go over to the other side uh, of, of the ocean and so, uh, or the sea. And so, uh, in verse 23, we read, and we got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And what I, uh, described before, thank you so much. Uh, what I described before in, um, uh, with, with the boat, I can't multitask. You guys understand that, right? <laughs> 
the boat, we, we have a good idea of what these boats were like because archaeologically we found boats that date to this period. Uh, not very big, 25 feet or so long, designed to carry just about a dozen guys that would uh, fish and, and room for their, their fish that, that they caught in the middle. And so this is, this is not a larger group. This is Jesus and the 12 who are now going out. And as he has called them to follow him, so they get into the boat and follow him. But I have to think this, and again, I'm, I'm, this is just, this is just me wondering that as unique as the Sea of Galilee was, and we'll talk about that in just a minute in terms of the development of this storm, that these guys, especially Peter and his brothers, that, you know, there was some sense of, the, the storm didn't come out of anywhere. I mean, you know, was there, were there already dark clouds on the horizon? You know, was there the smell of a storm in the air? I don't know. But they don't question Jesus. They get in the boat and they follow him. As I mentioned, the Sea of Galilee is unique in some ways. It sits about 600 feet below sea level and is surrounded by mountains. And so what happens is the cool air, you know, we learned this back in eighth grade science, right? The cool air comes down through the valleys. What's coming up from the, the Sea of Galilee? Warm air, right? When the two collide, cool air and warm air, we get storms. And so that's that's what happens. And um, I, I can't multitask, but I can do all kinds of tricks. <clears throat> Sorry, tuck that away. Uh, and so that's that's what develops here. And it's not just any storm, but these incredible storms can develop. The Sea of Galilee is known for that. It's not a, it, Sea of Galilee is a lake. We've talked about this. It's it's not uh, particularly huge. It's significant, but it's it's big enough that this uh, geographical makeup will lead to these these very quick and intense storms. That's what we see in verse twenty four. And behold, there arose. A great storm on the sea said that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And so Matthew, drawing our attention now to what's happening, he uses his favorite, and behold, Matthew likes to do that. It's his way of saying, look, uh, look at what I'm about to tell you. There arose this great storm on the sea. And the word that he uses for storm is not one that's typically used for storm. It's as actually seismos, which sounds more like an earthquake, it's where we get our word seismic from. And that's that's how he's describing this. He's basically saying this was an earthquake of a storm or a storm of seismic proportions. It was a storm that shook or rocked the Sea of Galilee. And so the storm is causing the waves to rise up. We see that they're coming up over the boat so that the boat is being swamped. The wind is blowing the waves in. And we don't even have to Wait for the next verse to see this is a perilous situation. If you've, if you've ever been out on a small craft in the ocean and something has come up, you realize how quickly, it's not like the movies, it's not like television. You, because you're, you're not only going through the rocking and the rolling motion and dealing with the wind and the blowing, but it is just, it's terrifying like around you, underneath you. It's just, you're in terror because you don't have control. You don't, you, you, you can't, uh, now I'm sure there are a few seasoned sailors here who probably uh, say, no, you, you can stay in control. But, but there's a, a lack of control that you can have in a storm. And that's what these guys were experiencing, a sense of helplessness, of being in something bigger than them, more powerful than them. Uh, again, we know this from flying in airplanes or riding on boats or, again, when we step off of a, a ladder, that there's a sense that the natural realm can remind us very quickly uh, that we're not in control. And so the waves are big, the waves are high, the waves are rough, they're blowing into the boat, and the men are afraid. They're filled with fear. Even these veteran sailors who were quite accustomed to being out on the Sea of Galilee, 
and they come to Jesus. And before they wake him up, Matthew tells us he's asleep. They had to wake him up because he was sleeping through the storm, that he remained asleep through what he has just described, an earthquake of a storm, a storm of seismic proportions, and Jesus remains asleep. Now, we can understand from a human perspective, Jesus was exhausted. He had this this, this period of, of healing ministry. Uh, he was looking for, for rest as a man. He knew exhaustion. He understood that. He's familiar with our frailties. Uh, as God, we can understand he, he grasps the peace that passes all understanding better than any of us, that he could sleep through anything. Uh, was it either or both? They, they don't undo the, each doesn't undo the other. The point is, is that Jesus was not alarmed by the storm and he was able, whether it was sheer exhaustion or whatever reason, he was able to remain asleep. Jesus knew what it was, what it was to be a human. That's why we, he can identify with us. He, he understands our trials, our frailties. Um, if you think of, of the, the night uh, that he was betrayed and he went into the garden before his crucifixion and he prayed, let this, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus understood dread. Um, it wasn't a sinful, uh, fear. We know Jesus never sinned, but he understood dread. And so why didn't he experience dread in the midst of the storm? Well, because he's Jesus. And so he didn't need to. And in part, and the part that we can at least connect with, is the fact that Jesus understood he was here for a reason. He came for a purpose. And this storm, no matter how great, the storm of seismic proportions would not thwart the purpose for which he came. And here's what we can take home. We don't know what God's purpose is for our lives. We don't know the details. We don't know the timeline. We don't know how many heartbeats that we'll have. But we do know this, that as long as the sovereign creator determines that we have breath, we shall. We will have breath. And there's a comfort in that when we face things that are surprises, when we face things that are unknowns, that as long as God determines that I go on living, I'm going to go on living. I don't have to fear. Whether it's the trivial thing that I think I can't wait another minute in the line at Publix because of these people in front of me who are trying to figure out their coupons or still write a check or, you know, whatever. Or it's, you know, something real and tragic and earth-shattering that we go through and we think, how am I going to face this? How am I going to get through it? The fact is, is that we can trust God with our lives in any sense of that we're tempted to be anxious or to be filled with fear, uh, you and I can live in peace, not because we can ever control the wind and the waves, but because the one who can has called us and made us his children and has purpose for us in our lives as long as that purpose remains. And then we have a sure, a sure hope beyond the grave. So there's a sense of peace that we can learn from Jesus here that he exemplifies as he sleeps in the boat. Well, the disciples, they're not quite there yet. They're crying out for help. I think I would be with them in verse 25. And they went and they woke him and said, Jesus, or save us, Lord, we are perishing. So they had to wake him. He was sleeping through all of this. And the disciples then call for help, uh, a call that is uh, something, again, that we can relate to. Uh, whatever situation we've been through in this life where we've called out for help because there's, it's, it's almost like a model for what we've experienced. It's a model for, uh, really 
our life of faith, that we would call out to Christ and say, save us, save me, for I am perishing. That's, that's really what this becomes a picture of. Now, in this moment, there was... This this was unique. I mean, it was true peril that they were in. This was not cowardice. These men were not uh, weak. Uh, they were not fearful. Some of these men had had probably been in similar storms on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was a storm that any sane person would have been fearful in. Yet the scene that we have here becomes a picture for us, as I mentioned, in that uh, it's a picture of our, our, our cry for help in in our own salvation, that we are in peril, that our sin has offended the holy God, that the wages of our sin is death and that we cannot save ourselves. And we have in salvation cried out to the only one who could save, Lord, save me for I am perishing. And the wages of sin that were our due, he has taken upon himself and they have been accounted for and he has granted us his righteousness. And so this peace that we see in the storm is something that is ascribed to Christ, not to willpower or to determinism or to some kind of courage. The peace that we see embodied here is peace that is linked directly to Christ and our faith in him. The point is, is that as we trust Christ, it doesn't mean all peril disappears. You know, remember, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) And it sounded like, if you just trust Jesus, all your problems will go away, and then you, you live just a little bit longer and realize that's not the case, that there are perils in this life. We don't understand all of them, uh, but we're promised uh, suffering, we're promised trials, we're promised difficult times. And so while our ultimate security is certain, we know what what awaits us beyond death, there is also a sense of we have to make it to the finish line. And so what is it that we need here in this life? We need a peace that is beyond understanding, a peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we need. That's what the disciples needed, and that's what Jesus ultimately calls them to. It, it, it's the, it, it, the, in this picture of Lord save me, it's a picture not of uh, we, we could say the disciples were immature, uh, that he, you know, he calls them a little faith, uh, men of little faith. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But th- there's a sense of, of, of maturity in a call, Lord, save me. You think of the prayer that Jesus taught when the publican went over to the side and he talked to God about how great and wonderful he was. And then there was the, the, the tax collector who fell and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And which is the prayer that Jesus lifted up as the righteous one? Right, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. There's a sense of uh, it's not spiritually immature to cry out, Lord, save me. That ought to be our cry, not just in the moment of salvation, but really on a daily basis. Lord, save me. Save me from the peril that I'm in. Save me from myself. Save me from the world around me. Save me from the temptation of the evil one. Save me. It's what the psalmist does again and again and again. Psalm 109:26 Help me O Lord my God save me according to your steadfast love. Psalm 69:1 Save me O God for the waters have come up to my neck. Or Psalm 55:16 But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice any time of the day. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. 
So we're called to call upon God, not just to the moment of salvation, but in all of life. Lord, save me. Now, is Jesus rebuking the disciples? Yeah, there's, there's a correction here, but let's look at what it is. He said to them in verse 26, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. We've seen this phrase once already. We'll see it again that Jesus uses, O you of little faith. He used it in the Sermon on the Mount in his teaching on anxiety. And it is corrective. It's, it is a rebuke. But, you know, we can put condescension in there and it's not necessarily appropriate. Um, it might have been, but let me argue that it's not uh, what Jesus had in mind here. It's not a rebuke of condescension. He reserved rebukes of condescension primarily for the religious uh, um, teachers and, and the ones who were full of themselves, the proud. But for his disciples, his rebukes were, um, well, Jesus said, I'm gentle and lowly. I won't, I won't snuff out a burning, a, a, a smoldering wick. I won't, I won't bruise a reed. That's the kind of correction this is. And he is pointing to the fact that their faith is little. They don't realize the one who is with them. But it is, while correction, it is correction spoken in love. It's his way of saying, there really is no need for you guys to be afraid. Now, humanly speaking, there's every need for them to be afraid because this storm was horrifying. But Jesus is saying that even in the most horrifying storm, even when the plane is dropping out of the air, literally or metaphorically, you have no reason to be afraid because I am with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God has made us his children, and as long as he has purpose for our lives, we shall continue to breathe and carry out that purpose. Isn't that comforting? It ought to be. We don't know how many heartbeats we have. We don't know how many breaths we have. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we do know and trust the one who sovereignly rules over all. Therefore, we have no reason to be afraid. And so here the disciples hear this from Jesus. And then he does what I'm going to have to imagine, if not in the top five, at least in the top ten most incredible things they ever saw in their lives. Because he spoke. And in the same way Matthew describes a great storm, he says there came a great calm. He spoke and whoosh. The wind and the waves obeyed his voice, and they became calm. And what happens, it says their hearts marveled. They began to wonder. They had fear. In verse 27, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The fear that they had in this moment, I would argue, exceeded the fear they had for the storm. Because they saw one who could speak. And the wind and the waves responded to his voice. We might paraphrase their question, who in the world could speak so that storms instantly vanish? This is not even in our frame of mind. We didn't even imagine that this could happen, that someone could stand in the boat in the middle of the storm and say, be still, and the waters and the winds would be still. We didn't even imagine this. Who is this? Matthew kind of juxtaposes or contrasts here these these men he describes with their question, what sort of man? That the disciples were ordinary men, created beings, right? And here they marvel at this one who is no ordinary man, but God incarnate 
who could speak with the power of the natural realm. Well, the conclusion that Matthew describes here for his disciples, uh, or here with the disciples, he being one of them, is the same conclusion he wants for his readers, for us. This is where we should arrive, that we should marvel at who Jesus is. Marveling is a, a combination of awe and holy fear. That in this moment, the disciples are unable to save themselves, but Jesus has the ability to speak and to make it all calm. Everything. The circumstance just completely erased. The disciples were weak in faith, but Jesus, Jesus personifies what it looks like to live in faith in the sense that he was sleeping in the middle of the storm, right? He's not alarmed by this. The disciples were still grasping the point of their lives. Jesus understood firmly his life had a purpose, and there was a timeline that the, that the Father sovereignly orchestrated, and he would carry out and live along that timeline that he didn't have to live in fear. And so here's what it will look like then for us. In short, our awe and fear at Jesus will lead to one outcome, and it will be the same outcome as the disciples. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. You can appreciate the teachings of Jesus, the works that he did, his ideology, anything else about him. But if you don't come to the place where your response is, Lord, save me, for I am perishing, you have not understood Jesus. This is his whole point. Jesus doesn't want us to marvel at him because he's on an ego trip. Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is not looking for accolades in the sense that we would think of that from a human perspective. Jesus came for the purpose of living and dying to accomplish our redemption. He spoke over those waves to, for a purpose. In the moment, was it to save them? Yes. Was it to teach them and us? Yes. But ultimately, he spoke over the wind and the waves. He acted to declare his glory. And truly the glory of the Trinity. We see this in his high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Everything Jesus did, all that he was about, was about bringing glory to the triune God. If Jesus was simply an ordinary human, then, yeah, we could describe this as some kind of ego trip that he was trying to get glory for himself, but we know better than that because Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to gain glory for himself for the purpose, not uh, not for uh, building up his, up his ego, but to declare who he is. Because as the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy God, for glory not to be ascribed would be unjust, would be wrong, would be incorrect. It is necessarily right and true for glory to be exemplified in all that God does. And here's the beauty of that glory, that my redemption and your redemption is a part of his glory. That's why he did it. For his own glory, he saved a people for himself. And as recipients of that promise through faith in Christ Jesus, we are heirs of all the benefits. Benefits, some of which we know, some of which we are yet to understand. But by his grace, we who have cried out, Lord, save us, have been made his children and have become heirs. He has heard and in love done exactly that. If you have not cried out to the Lord 
Save me, for I am perishing. Then marvel at Christ today. See who he is. Listen to his claims and call out to him. For if you call out and believe in your heart, he will save you from perishing. The one who spoke over the natural realm that day would later speak to this same group of men. It was on the night that he was betrayed. They were having the Passover meal together. And this table is what comes from that explanation that he gave to them that night. This was three years in now. The disciples understood a little bit more. They were going to learn even more as time went on. But this night he explained why he came, why he did what he did, who he was. Everything he said, everything he had done led up to these moments now that were unfolding before him on this evening. He took the bread and he explained to them why his body would be broken. He took the wine and explained why his blood would be poured out. That all for love's sake, he became poor, both in life and in death, that you and I might become rich in salvation. And that salvation here spread before us in this table. We've heard the word proclaimed in the sermon, but now we hear and see and taste and touch that same word proclaimed to us. It is the word of our salvation, the word of our redemption the word of the gospel. And that word to us today is simply this, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray. Father, all of us uh, have experienced storms. Some are going through incredible storms right now. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds, and we certainly don't control the circumstances. We're not in control. We confess that. Lord, we face battles. We wage wars. But we are not capable of saving ourselves ever. Hear us today as we cry out, Lord, save us. Save us. We're perishing. We need you as Savior, not just in that moment of salvation, but as we walk in faith day by day, Lord, that you would continually, continually deliver us, pull us out of the pit, keep us from the fire that it would burn us, keep us from the river that it would overwhelm us, Lord. Show us that you are with us, that you will carry us to the end. Lord, give us hope and assurance in this. Give our hearts that peace that is beyond comprehension. Would you guard and protect our hearts in Christ Jesus that we might know this peace beyond understanding. Lord, may we know and trust you that we would not be afraid, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.